So continuing uh, with some readings about in the neighborhood uh, of sense restraint or uh, the sense faculties in general. And just one sutta, uh, fairly short sutta this morning, and then I'll finish up where we started with the uh, Ajahn Chah Fountain of Wisdom talk uh, that we started on yesterday. So this uh, sutta is from the um, Anguttara Nikaya, the Book of the Fours, number 37. Uh, and it's just a, uh, a review of um, what we would call uh, some of the Apanika Dhammas, Dhammas which are always teachings, practices which are always appropriate. And the guarding of the sense doors is, is one of those practices. Bhikkhus, a bhikkhu who possesses four qualities, is incapable of decline and is in the vicinity of Nibbana. What for? Here a bhikkhu is accomplished in virtuous behavior, guards the, door of the doors of the sense faculties, observes moderation in eating, and is intent on wakefulness. And how is a bhikkhu accomplished in virtuous behavior? Here a bhikkhu is virtuous. He dwells restrained by the patimoka, possessed of good conduct and resort, seeing danger in minute faults. Having undertaken the training rules, he trains in them. It is in this way that a bhikkhu is accomplished in virtuous behavior. And how does a bhikkhu guard the doors of the sense faculties? Here, having seen a form with the eye, a bhikkhu does not grasp at its marks and features, or signs and features sometimes. Since, if he left the eye faculty unrestrained, bad, unwholesome states of longing and dejection might invade him, he practices restraint over it. He guards the eye faculty. He undertakes the restraint of the eye faculty. Having heard a sound with the ear, having smelled an odor with the nose, having tasted a taste with the tongue, having felt a tactile object with the body, having cognized a mental phenomenon with the mind, a bhikkhu does not grasp at its marks and features. Since, if he left the mind faculty unrestrained, bad, unwholesome states of longing and dejection might invade him, he practices restraint over it. He guards the mind faculty. He undertakes the restraint of the mind faculty. It is in this way that a bhikkhu guards the doors of the sense faculties. And how does a bhikkhu observe moderation in eating? Here, reflecting carefully, a bhikkhu consumes food neither for amusement nor for intoxication, nor for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness, but only for the support and maintenance of this body, for avoiding harm and for assisting the spiritual life, considering, thus I shall terminate the old feelings and not arouse a new feeling. And that refers to terminating the old feeling of hunger and not arousing a new feeling of, of sense desire. And I shall be healthy and blameless and dwell at ease. It is in this way that a bhikkhu observes moderation in eating. And how is a bhikkhu intent on wakefulness? Here, during the day, while walking back and forth and sitting, a bhikkhu purifies his mind of obstructive qualities. In the first watch of the night, while walking back and forth and sitting, he purifies his mind of obstructive qualities. In the middle watch of the night, he lies down on the right side in the lion's posture, 
with one foot overlapping the other, mindful and clearly comprehending, after noting in his mind the idea of arising. After rising in the last watch of the night, while walking back and forth and sitting, he purifies his mind of obstructive qualities. It is in this way that a bhikkhu is intent on wakefulness. A bhikkhu who possesses these four qualities is incapable of decline and is in the vicinity of nibbana. In a verse, established in virtuous behavior, restrained in the sense faculties, moderate in eating, intent on wakefulness. A bhikkhu dwells thus ardently, unwearying by day and night, developing wholesome qualities to attain security from bondage. A bhikkhu who delights in heedfulness, seeing the danger in heedlessness, is incapable of decline. He is close to nibbana. So, yeah, the iteration of these apanika dhammas, essential ajahn cha, uh, emphasize these as the cornerstone of of, uh, the training of the the bhikkhu sangha and the nuns uh, in uh, Wapapong as well. Um, just a, yeah, a couple of comments on that. Um, accomplished in virtuous behavior, restrained by the patimoka, uh, seeing danger in minute faults, and that's, you know, sometimes people um, uh, kind of tangentially criticize our tradition for being too strict or being overly uh, picky about details of, of our vinaya practice, uh, um, our core watts, uh, you know, the, the kind of impeccability with which we try to observe uh, all of the rules and observances, in, including the most minor ones, spend a lot of time um, talking about that. Uh, and um, I, I think that, you know, the rationale that uh, Ajahn Chah found and that we've all found uh, when, we, when you do train with them is that um, it's not just a matter of rule following. It's a, um, it's a real uh, practice in mindfulness. Uh, to learn and to uh, in, employ all these uh, uh, ways of behavior, even the most subtle ones, in, into our daily practice uh, means that you have to maintain a fairly uh, clear state of, uh, of awareness of what you're doing, what you're saying, and how you're just uh, comporting yourself during the day. Um, so a very, uh, a very strong practice in uh, knowing mindfulness and clear comprehension not just kind of rule following. The other thing that uh, I've always appreciated, and we often talk about in our Vinaya classes, uh, is Ajahn Jayasaro's reflection that these rules that we keep uh, are like concentric circles, uh, so that uh, even if some of them are quite minor, uh, in terms of you break one of the rules and you know, the consequences aren't all that substantial, uh, they protect us from the more major rules, so that if we le- have that level of scrupulosity, uh, without being, you know, overly compulsive or, or kind of taking it to ridiculous extremes, um, then that attention to the fine details of, you know, our our actions and our speech uh, protect us from uh, grosser infractions that that are have have much stronger consequences. So that notion of concentric circles seen danger in the uh, smallest faults. And then um, moderation in eating. I think that, you know, we've talked about that many times, just to, uh, that we use food for the spiritual life, uh, keeping the body healthy, uh, and not to try and get too involved with 
uh, igniting sense desire, uh, not to be too, too picky, but not to also be too tight. Sometimes, uh, you know, uh, if we have strong attachments around the food area, we uh, can sometimes um, go into overreaction and uh, restrict ourselves and, you know, by taking on certain austerities and, and to the point of, of uh, compulsiveness in the opposite direction. Uh, and it's uh, important to find that, that middle way of balance so that uh, you're not feeding the defilement either through uh, over-attachment uh, and pursuing essential indulgence or uh, going into extreme self-denial uh, so that, uh, you know, it, it just reinforces that attachment but it, uh, because of aversion rather than uh, moderation. So just really looking very clearly at how we use food uh, and not getting involved uh, in too many extremes on either direction. And the same for uh, sleep and wakefulness, uh, finding the right amount of uh, sleep that's useful uh, without depriving oneself so much of sleep that one is not very functional during the day uh, and or overindulging so that one just gets lost in uh, drowsiness, sloth, torpor, laziness, uh, and, uh, you know, waste a significant portion of the day just drifting off. So again, it's that uh, finding the middle way uh, of all of these kinds of practices that's uh, emphasized and, and very important for us. Okay. Yeah, and tomorrow, just as a preview, um, I have a very nice essay from Ajahn Jeff on uh, sense restraint in general uh, that kind of fleshes out some more of the aspects of sense, sense restraint and, and how to work with that. But for the rest of this morning session, I'll finish up this Ajahn Chah uh, teaching uh, that we started yesterday, the Fountain of Wisdom, so starting halfway through. Actually, the sense bases of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind are all things which can facilitate the arising of wisdom if we know them as they are. If we don't really know them, we must deny them saying we don't want to see sights, hear sounds, and so on, because they disturb us. If we cut off the causal conditions, what are we going to contemplate? Think about it. Where would there be any cause and effect? This is wrong thinking on our part. This is why we are taught to be restrained. Restraint is sila. There is the sila of sense restraint, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. These are our sila, and they are our samadhi. Reflect on the story of Sariputta. At the time before he became a Buddha, he saw Asaji Tara going on alms round. Seeing him, Sariputta thought, this monk is most unusual. He walks neither too fast nor too slow. His robes are neatly worn. His bearing is restrained. Sariputta was inspired by him, so approached Venerable Asaji and paid his respects to him and asked him, Excuse me, sir, who are you? I am a Samana, who is your teacher. Venerable Gotama is my teacher. What does Venerable Gotama teach? He teaches that all things arise because of conditions. When they cease, it's because the causal conditions have ceased. When asked about the Dhamma by Sariputta, Asaji explained only in brief. He talked about cause and effect. Dhammas arise because of causes. The cause arise first, and then the result. 
When the result is to cease, the cause must first cease. That's all he said, but it was enough for Sariputta. Now this was a cause for the arising of Dhamma. At that time, Sariputta had eyes, he had ears, he had a nose, a tongue, a body, and a mind. All his faculties were intact. If he didn't have his faculties, would there have been sufficient causes for wisdom to arise for him? Would he have been aware of anything? But most of us are afraid of contact. Either that, or we like to have contact, but we develop no wisdom from it. Instead, we repeatedly indulge through eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, delighting in and getting lost in sense objects. This is how it is. These sense bases can entice us into delight and indulgence, or they can lead to knowledge and wisdom. They have both harm and benefit, depending on our wisdom. Now let us understand that, having gone forth and having come here to practice, we should take everything as practice. Even the bad things, we should know them all. Why? So that we may know the truth. When we talk of practice, we don't simply mean those things that are good and pleasing to us. That's not how it is. In this world, some things are to our liking, some are not. These things all exist in this world, nowhere else. Usually, whatever we like, we want, even regarding fellow monks and novices. Whatever monk or novice we don't like, we don't want to associate with. We only want to be with those we like. You see, this is choosing according to our likes. Whatever we don't like, we don't want to see or know about. Actually, the Buddha wanted us to experience these things. Lo kavidu, translated as knower of the world, an epithet of the Buddha. Lo kavidu, look at this world and know it clearly. If we don't know the truth of the world clearly, then we can't go anywhere. Living in the world, we must understand the world. The noble ones of the past, including the Buddha, all lived with these things. They lived in this world among deluded people. They attained the truth right in this very world, nowhere else. They didn't run off to some other world to find the truth. They had wisdom. They restrained their senses, but the practice is to look at, into all these things and know them as they are. Therefore, the Buddha taught us to know the sense bases, our points of contact. The eye contacts forms and sends them in to become sights. The ears make contact with sounds. The nose makes contact with odors. The tongue makes contact with tastes. The body makes contact with tactile sensations. And so awareness arises. Where awareness arises is where we should look at and see things as they are. If we don't know these things as they really are, we will either fall in love with them or hate them. Where these sensations arise <clears throat> is where we can become enlightened, where wisdom can arise. But sometimes we don't want things to be like that. The Buddha taught restraint, but restraint doesn't mean we don't see anything, hear anything, smell, taste, feel, or think anything. That's not what it means. If practitioners don't understand this, then as soon as they see or hear anything, they cower and run away. They don't deal with things. They run away, thinking that, that by doing so, those things will eventually lose their power over them, that they will eventually transcend them. But they won't. They won't transcend anything like that. If they run away, not knowing the truth of them, 
Later on, the same stuff will pop up to be dealt with again. For example, these practitioners who are never content, be they in monasteries, forests, or, or mountains, wander on Dutanga pilgrimage, looking at this, that, and the other, thinking they'll find contentment that way. They go, and then they come back. They didn't see anything. They try to go to mountaintop. Ah, this is the spot. Now I'm right. They feel at peace for a few days, and then get tired of it. Oh, well, off to the seaside. Ah, here it's nice and cool. This'll do me fine. After a while, they get tired of the seaside as well. Tired of the forests, tired of the mountains, tired of the seaside, tired of everything. This is not being tired of things in the right sense. This is not right view. It's simply boredom, a kind of wrong view. Their view is not in accordance with the way that things are. When they get back to the monastery, now what will I do? I've been all over and came back with nothing. So they throw away their bowls and disrobe. Why do they disrobe? Because they haven't gotten any grip on the practice. They don't see anything. They go to the north and don't see anything. They go to the seaside, to the mountains, into the forests, and still don't see anything. So it's all finished. They, quote unquote, die. This is how it goes. It's because they're continually running away from things. Wisdom doesn't arise. Now take another example. Suppose there is one monk who determines to stay with things and not run away. He looks after himself. He knows himself and also knows those who come to stay with him. He's continually dealing with problems. Take the abbot, for example. If one is an abbot of a monastery, there are constant problems to deal with. There's a constant stream of things that demand attention. Why so? Because people are always asking questions. The questions never end. So you must be constantly on the alert. You're constantly solving problems, your own as well as other people's. You must be constantly awake. Before you can doze off, they wake you up again with another problem. So this causes you to contemplate and understand things. You become skillful. Skillful in regard to yourself and skillful in regard to others. Skillful in many, many ways. Right, Ajahn Yannico? <laughs> This skill arises from contact, from confronting and dealing with things, from not running away. We don't run away physically, but we run away in mind using our wisdom. We understand with wisdom right here. We don't run away from anything. This is a source of wisdom. One must work, must associate with other things. For instance, living in a big monastery like this, we must all help out to look after the things here. Looking at it in one way, you could say that it's all defilement. Living with lots of monks and novices, with many lay people coming and going, many defilements may arise. Yes, I admit. But we must live like this for the development of wisdom and for the abandonment of foolishness. Which way are we, go which way are we to go? Are we going to live in order to get rid of foolishness or to increase our foolishness? We must contemplate. Whenever our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or mind make contact, we should be collected and circumspect. When suffering arises, we should ask, who is suffering? Why did this suffering arise? The abbot of a monastery has to supervise many disciples. Now that may be suffering. We must know suffering when it arises. Know suffering. If we are afraid of suffering and don't want to face it, where are we going to do battle with it? 
If suffering arises and we don't know it, how are we going to deal with it? This is of utmost importance. We must know suffering. Escaping from suffering means knowing the way out of suffering. It doesn't mean running away from wherever suffering arises. By doing that, you just carry your suffering with you. When suffering arises again somewhere else, you'll have to run away again. This is not transcending suffering. It's not knowing suffering. If you want to understand suffering, you must look into the situation at hand. The teaching says that wherever a problem arises, it must be settled right there. Where suffering lies is right where non-suffering will arise. It ceases at the place where it arises. If suffering arises, you must contemplate it right there. You don't have to run away. You should settle the issue right there. One who runs away from suffering out of fear is the most foolish person of all. He will simply increase his stupidity endlessly. We must understand suffering is none other than the first noble truth. Isn't that so? Are you going to look on it as something bad? Dukkha satcha, samudaya satcha, nirodha satcha, maga satcha. The footnotes, samudaya, origin, origination, arising, nirodha, cessation, disbanding, stopping, maga, path, specifically the path to the cessation of, of suffering. Running away from these things isn't practice according, practicing according to the true Dhamma. When will you ever see the truth of suffering? If we keep running away from suffering, we will never know it. Suffering is something we should recognize. If you don't observe it, when will you ever recognize it? Not being content here, you run over there. When discontent arises there, you run off again. You are always running. If that's the way you practice, you'll be racing with the devil all over the country. The Buddha taught us to run away using wisdom. For instance, suppose you had stepped on a thorn or splinter and it got embedded in your foot. As you walk, it occasionally hurts, occasionally not. Sometimes you may step on a stone or a stump and it really hurts. So you feel around your foot. But not finding anything, you shrug it off and walk on a bit more. Eventually you step on something else and the pain arises again. Now this happens many times. What is the cause of that pain? The cause is that splinter or thorn embedded in your foot. The pain is constantly near. Wherever, whenever the pain arises, you may take a look and feel around a bit, but not seeing the splinter, you let it go. After a while, it hurts again, so you take another look. When suffering arises, you must note it. Don't just shrug it off. Whenever the pain arises, hmm, that splinter is still there. Whenever the pain arises, there arises also the thought that that splinter has got to go. If you don't take it out there, if you don't take it out, there will only be more pain later on. The pain keeps recurring again and again until the desire to take out that thorn is constantly with you. In the end, it reaches a point where you make up your mind once and for all to get that thorn out, because it hurts. Now our effort in the practice must be like this. Wherever it hurts, wherever there's friction, we must investigate. Confront the problem head on. Take that thorn out of your foot. Just pull it out. Wherever your mind gets stuck, you must take note. As you look into it, you will know it see it and experience it as it is.
Our practice must be unwavering and persistent. They call it viryarambha, putting forth constant effort. Whenever an unpleasant feeling arises in your foot, for example, you must remind yourself to get that thorn out and not to give up your resolve. Likewise, when suffering arises in our hearts, we must have the unwavering resolve to try to uproot the defilements, to give them up. This resolve is constantly there, unremitting. Eventually, the defilements will fall into our hands where we can finish them off. So, in regard to happiness and suffering, what are we to do? If we didn't have these things, what could we use as a cause to precipitate wisdom? If there is no cause, how will the effect arise? All dhammas arise because of causes. When the result ceases, it's because the cause has ceased. This is how it is, but most of us don't really understand. People only want to run away from suffering. This sort of knowledge is short of the mark. Actually, we need to know this very world that we are living in. We don't have to run away anywhere. You should have the attitude that to stay is fine and to go is fine. Think about this carefully. Where do happiness and suffering lie? If we don't hold fast to, cling to, or fix out, fix onto anything as if we weren't there, suffering doesn't arise. Suffering arises from existence, bhava. If there is existence, then there is birth. Upadana, clinging or attachment, this is the prerequisite which creates suffering. Wherever suffering arises, look into it. Don't look too far away. Look right into the present moment. Look at your own mind and body. When suffering arises, ask, why is there suffering? Look right now. When happiness arises, ask, what is the cause of that happiness? Look right there. Wherever these things arise, be aware. Both happiness and suffering arise, arise from clinging. Actually, I still got a number of pages to go. So maybe I'll just stop there rather than rushing through this. And uh, get some time for any comments or questions if people have any. Thank you for the reading, Ajahn. Um, <clears throat> did you ever get mindfulness burnout in the beginning? Because <laughs> like there are, once in a while I get days where I just don't feel like putting in the effort. The ardency is, is hard, is uh, difficult to bring up because I'm just tired from like all the previous days of putting in that effort constantly, constantly, constantly. I'm like, okay, I need a break. Um, so I don't know if, if that gets better as you progress in the path or, um, or what kind of strategies am I going too hard maybe on those days prior to those days where I get that burnout? What is it that you're uh, thinking of as being mindful uh, in terms of uh, uh, the quality of your attention and, and where you're putting your, uh, what you're bringing to mind when you're practicing mindfulness in quotes? What, is, what are you doing? Um, basically every single thing that I do um, I try to be clearly aware of what I'm doing. Basically what, um, you know, Ajahn Basano talked about um, 
in his talk um, a couple nights ago, um, just constantly being aware of what I'm doing, situational awareness, and putting in that effort, uh, and obviously meditation as well to, to cultivate that, but then really carrying that meditation outside of the actual sitting part. And putting your attention on what? Um, whatever it is that I'm doing. So if I'm walking, I'll try to focus on my steps. If I'm brushing my teeth, I'm brushing my teeth and focusing on just doing a good job brushing my teeth. Like, like just at that point in your mouth or that point in your feet or whatever. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think, um, yeah, at least in my experience, that kind of intense, um, kind of single-pointed focus on minutia, you know, parts of the body, um, uh, and that constant uh, pressurized feeling of needing to be, you know, focus one's attention quite precisely uh, in a certain area over and over and over and over and over again is going to result in fatigue, <laughs> exhaustion. In a sense, it's that kind of, you know, the simile of uh, practicing like a well-tuned lute. The strings have to, if the strings are too loose, then they're kind of all floppy and all over the place. If the strings are too tight, then you've got a very strained, out-of-tune instrument. So you have to adjust your what you're conceiving of as mindfulness uh, to just the right level of uh, tension, in a sense, or attention, um, so that it's not too tight and it's not too loose. Uh, to me, what you describe is your attempts, you know, to to maintain continuous mindfulness, uh, is is a very tight kind of way of doing it, just from what you're saying, uh, and that this kind of uh, a little bit more relaxed. I mean, mindfulness in its heart uh, and clear with clear comprehension, knowing what's happening with the body in this instance. Um, uh, it is a very uh, open, um, all-around awareness that's not necessarily super high-focused uh, with a lot of, you know, tension. Um, Ajahn Jeff says uh, mindfulness, uh, when talking about mindfulness and concentration, um, uh, you know, sometimes people say, okay, well, mindfulness is, is a very broad, almost like Lung Paul was saying, choiceless awareness, like just letting the mind you know, drift and kind of an openness. And that concentration is a, a very high-focused point of attention on, on one small uh, object. But Ajahn Jeff says is that actually no, um, that concentration itself is actually always open uh, and broad. It's never pinched or super-focused. And mindfulness can be either uh, a broad focus or a narrow focus, depending on what you need at any one particular time. Um, and that, for the most part, uh, if the mind is relatively, um, you know, settled and not super involved with a lot of distraction and defilement, then most of the time that mindfulness can be sort of a broad uh, awareness as well. As, but that if there's some really strong mental defilements that are really overwhelming, say, you know, extreme lust or extreme anger, then mindfulness might need to be more focused on a counter object to, to dispel the, the, the lust uh, in a useful way or dispel the, the anger in a, in a useful way. So mindfulness can buy, be either kind of 
uh, open or um, narrow, depending on the needs. But even in its open state, it's not like just wandering. It's, it's contained within a, a broader object, but still contained, say, within the, the body as a whole. So to me, it sounds like maybe just from what you're describing is that tension uh, by trying to be so mindful to very small, minute aspects is, is going to be fatiguing and to maybe just kind of broaden uh, to a, a bit more of an open awareness uh, and mindfulness practice and relax with it. And, and you can be, you can establish this sense of knowing the body moving through space, uh, but still receiving, you know, input through the sense spaces, not narrowing it so closely that you're just completely un unaware of the world around you, um, that uh, you're still receiving input. You, you're clearly comprehending data as it comes in and out, but you're staying quite grounded in the body as a whole. Uh, and it's much more relaxed and open and receptive, at the same time not drifting. So, so it sounds like maybe open it up to more of the body as opposed to just that pinpoint thing of like brushing my teeth. And That's what I find very okay. useful. I mean, you can still be aware that you're brushing your teeth, but you're doing it within the context of, oh, there's a body standing here and there's sensations throughout the body and, and this feeling of a presence of a body as the teeth are being brushed. Ajahn Yannicka, any comments? Yeah, it's a tough one to kind of verbalize because that is, for people who are sincere, that is a common thing at first. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hard one to give a good or a satisfactory answer to. I think coming back to, like, there's certain things to keep in mind. Like, one thing to keep in mind is, like, just uh, relax, like, just relaxed, like that word relaxed, <laughs> like, okay. Being mindful doesn't mean you're tense, or being mindful doesn't mean uh, you're kind of like trying to, because uh, uh, in, in that sincerity of focusing and being fully, in, trying to be fully and clearly aware of every action throughout every part of the day, there is then, there's that hidden, unspoken desire for a result that's also adding to the exhaustion probably and uh, trying to clarify like what what do I want actually what, what am I trying to get from this and uh, so uh, I think what we come to is like it's like a relaxed wakefulness type a way to hold things in a like a balanced way with, like with the lute yeah, there's a story that just popped into my mind, too. I can't remember if it's Ajahn, from Ajahn Chah, but a story of a, a monk on Bindabat in Thailand who uh, yeah. you know, was practicing a very, very constricted kind of mindfulness, you know, just like totally focusing on uh, the point of uh, contact with his feet or just the road right in front of him as he was walking on um, Bindabat after alms round back to the monastery. And he was so mindful, quote unquote, that he completely missed the turn where he was supposed to go. <laughs> and and uh, he was actually veering off into the ditches always, okay. on the sides. <laughs> he actually wasn't even when it was straight and there wasn't a turn. He was actually, and Ajahn Shah had to keep yelling at him, go left, go left, <laughs> go right, go right. <laughs> so that's not the kind of mindfulness we're looking for. Yeah. It's like a hyper samadhi form of mindfulness where it's like he was focusing just on his feet and not not looking right. where the road was. Right. 
Yeah, you see that sometimes. In, you know, oftentimes in uh, you know newer monks who are uh, trying to engage in, in the appropriate way. You know, for sure. But uh, you know, it almost ends up being kind of like a zombie mindfulness. You know, you're just not. You've just shut off all of that awareness of time and purpose and place and circumstances. Burnout. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so so one good thing to do in that when that burnout arises is to see oh this is dukkha, like this is suffering. Then that gets back to that the insight aspect of it. Ashan, I was um, particularly struck. Uh, and was reflecting on the part of the sutta that talked about uh, the mental, um, the uh, sense restraint of the mental faculty. And um, I'll ask just broadly if you can just speak a little more on that. But specifically, you know, uh, I was thinking, you know, vipaka will arise, right? And that's not the issue, right? It's that any proliferation off of that, or just thinking about like what like any additional expanding on like the mental sense restraint and what is, because it's not, I, I think I understand, it's not trying to like suppress thought, but just any threads you can pull out. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, you know, when you're watching the observing, noticing the, the thinking process, um, it's, it is, it's a, it's a, um, uh, it, I find it's a, a fertile ground for contemplation, and that uh, you know sometimes I'm still trying to sort it out because thought arises uh, in different ways due to different causes and conditions. And sometimes it is, sometimes vitaka is vipaka, <laughs> the result, uh, you know, of just pro, uh, you know, uh, patterns of, of thinking. And sometimes you can just be sitting there, and the, the weirdest thoughts will just pop in, you know, and where did that come from? But it almost seems like it's a result, you know, of, of causes and conditions, and it's just manifesting as a, as a, a verbal construction in the mind, which has a different quality than the kind of thought, Vitaka, that has intention behind it, you know, that's due to the mind looking for something or trying to explain something or trying to conceptualize something that then has a certain momentum of intention behind it that then pushes into the, the proliferation process if, if there's a, a defiling uh, underlying mind state. So sometimes it's just a real interesting contemplation to be sitting there with your mind quiet, noticing thoughts and trying to determine, okay, is this just kind of a random verbal construction that I don't need to really be concerned about? Um, or is there a bit of reactivity or intention behind something that I'm either looking to get or to get away from or to conceptualize? So I find it's really good to look at the energy behind the thinking uh, to see whether it's like a sankara or just kind of a resultant condition. I mean, it's still a sankara in a sense, but whether there's any oomph behind it that's pushing you into proliferation. I feel like it's inaccurate to say, if I just want like a bumper sticker short, you know, thing to kind of hold on to, um, is, is it inaccurate to say that mental sense restraint is non-proliferation? Or, or is that, that's not nuanced enough? Mm, it's, yeah, I mean, I think it starts with that, what I was describing of like getting to 
um, what's the underlying movement that's going on underneath the, the mental activity. And usually, you know, when we're talking about uh, the activity of the mind, the mind is a sense-based, uh, the uh, intellect aspect of it, the manas aspect of it, rather than the citta aspect of mind, the manas, the intellectual aspect. Um, you know, we're usually referring to verbal thought, uh, but, you know, things like emotions and, and different kinds of other activities kind of fit into that whole category of, you know, planning, evaluating, uh, conceptualizing, abstracting. You know, those are all activities. So to um, restraint in that area, I think, really uh, does mean that you have to kind of be willing to go a little bit deeper because that whole intellectual process, intellectualizing process, conceptualizing, is a very surface level manifestation of, of what's going on on a deeper level. So you can use that as, as your entry point to go deeper into, okay, what's, what's the underlying tendency here? What's the state of mind going on here that's producing this thought? Um, and so you're not just kind of like trying to squelch the thought, but you're using it as a doorway to look at what's underneath it that's motivating it. Because you can have some very skillful thoughts that you don't want to suppress that you know are looking towards reminding yourself of a skillful mind state. You know, it's intellectual thinking. Thinking isn't necessarily bad if we use it in the right way to to store and retrieve data that's good and helpful. And points us in the right direction. Yeah. Okay, it's just after nine, so call it a day. <laughs>